Alrighty. I think camera's running. Bible's open. There you go. I've got a confession to make. When I was a teenager, um, I used to go along with my church youth group to barn dances. <laughs> I don't know if you know what a barn dance is. Um, I've seen some nods and sadly they're all amongst the people my age and older. Um, bush dance, kind of similar, cross between a waltz and, nah, it's not really like a waltz. Um, bush dancing, or barn dancing in particular, kind of works well with music that is 4-4 time. Did you know that? And um, I had a, a song that was a bit of a favourite of mine because I didn't listen too closely to the lyrics. And uh, I recommended at one time to our church that we uh, do some barn dancing to this song. It was by Buckman Turner Overdrive. Uh, and it was called You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet. But baby, you ain't seen nothing yet. Um, people know that song? It's, um, well, just get into barn dancing. Um, it, it's great to barn dance to. Uh, but uh, it's, a, it's a song that has a bit of a refrain that says this, any love is good love. Any love is good love. But we ought to be warned because the opening line of the song goes, I met a devil woman. And of course, any love is not good love. There's all kinds of love that is unhelpful. There's kinds of love which really aren't love at all. We've been looking at a series now on love. We've looked at four dimensions of love. We've looked at how love comes down to us from God, how it's seen most clearly in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ for us. That is the demonstration of God's love for us. We've seen that we're called to love God in response with our whole heart and soul and being. We are to love one another, to love our neighbour as ourself. We are to build one another with truth and love. And we've seen also that we're called to love the person who's outside the church. We're called to love those in our community, those who don't know God. So there's four dimensions from God to us, from us back to God, to one another and out there into the world. But as we finish this series, I think it's helpful to look not only at what to love, but what not to love. And next week we'll look at what to do when the love is not there. So I want to look today with you at this passage in particular, which talks about what not to love and what not to love is the world. I'll just recap these verses. Listen to how often the world gets mentioned from verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. The world gets mentioned again and again and again. In fact, in this letter that John writes, the world gets mentioned on so many occasions. And I think it's helpful for us just to have a little bit of a think about what's intended when John calls on us not to love the world, particularly because didn't God so love the world? And we've already seen that. Well, I'm going to read to you every reference to the word world in 1 John. Uh, most of them occur in the verses that we've read. I won't read them twice. But if we go back into chapter 2 and verse 2, 
It speaks of Christ as the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So the world has sins, and God loves a world that has been gripped by sin, and so he sends his son to die. Come down further into chapter 3. The reason the world does not know us, that is Christians, is that it did not know him, that is Jesus. Or to come down a little further to verse 13, do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Because the world hated Jesus and the world will hate those who follow Jesus. Into chapter 4, dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Or down a little further, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard is coming and even now is already in the world. There you've got associations with evil, with the evil one, with the impact of evil on the world itself. Verse 4, you dear children are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them, but we are from God. So it's talking here about people who are evil, this anti-Christ, who speaks against God in contrast to the people who are with God and following God. And so there's a warfare that's at work. Or down a little bit further in chapter seven, no, chapter 4, uh, verse 9, this is how God showed his love amongst us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Verse 14, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. Verse 17, this is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world we are like Jesus. And then in chapter 5, verse 4, this is the victory that has overcome the world, that is our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Well, only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And then finally in verse 19, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So you've just looked at every reference to world in John's letter. It's important for him. He can't talk about the gospel and what's going on with the work of Jesus and speak of how Christians stand out from the world around them without using this language. But what do we see? What, what's going on? And how do we kind of work with it? Here's my suggestion. That we draw a distinction which <clears throat> won't hold up on every occasion. But it will give us, I think, a grasp on the difference. That we draw a distinction between the word for and the word of. So that to use this language, we speak of a good love for the world. And that is the love that God has for the world, which is about saving a world which is in the grip of evil. And to save the world which is in the grip of evil, Jesus comes into the world, takes all the sin upon himself and sacrifices himself with the sin to pay for it. That's God's love for the world. And if we are to be like the Father, then we will have that kind of love for the world. That is, we'll see people who are in need of forgiveness. We'll see people who are trapped in their evil. We'll see people who desperately need to hear a message of salvation. But we will contrast that with a love 
of the world. That is a love that can be seduced by a world that's in opposition to God. And that's what we're going to focus on now. So we're going to look at what this passage talks about in terms of not loving. We are not to love the world. The, the love of the world in this way is incompatible with the love of the Father. Look at verse 14 on your outline. Sorry, my eyes are a bit blurry. It's actually 15. <laughs> I have to remember to bring my glasses. The numbers, because they're real little numbers, they just kind of look like dots to me. Um, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. You know what Jesus said? You cannot love God and mammon, or you cannot love God and money. It's not like you can kind of uh, love the things of this world, money and what money will buy, and God. You've got a... Uh, you, You've got two incompatible things there. You either love God or you love money or you love money and you don't love God. Well, it's the same thing that he's talking about here. We either love the world or we love God the Father. The two are in contrast. They're incompatible. They can't be held together. And it's not something on the outside either. It's fundamentally an attitude of the heart. Look at the way it's expressed in verse 16. Here's the rationale for everything in the world. And then look at what he says. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life comes not from the father, but from the world. So th there's nothing evil about a shopping center. There's nothing evil about the beach. There's nothing wrong with housing and development or farms and, and national parks. There's nothing wrong with the world. It's the attitude of the world that he's talking about. Notice these things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. These are all things that are internal. They're values, they're attitudes, they're, they're what comes from the inside out. And he's saying you can't love the world in this way and claim to love God the Father at the same time. They're, they're incompatible. What does it mean to have a lust of the flesh? Well, I think this is his kind of broad summary statement, if you like. It, it's, it's the attachment to the things of this world. Particularly, I think, it's tied up with the idea of experiencing and sucking everything that we can out of this life. And I think that's a serious problem in the Western world. We see it by, what are the two great tragedies? of COVID. We can't travel. We love to travel. We love to cross the seas. We love to go on the planes. We love to see this and see that. But the other great tragedy is we can't shop the way we need to shop. And, and so the relief and the inspiration for getting things back together is we've got to give people money so that they can buy. And they need to buy because they, they've just got to keep the machinery going. It's not that we are in desperate need, but we are somehow being fed the idea that if we experience this or if we have this, then we'll be satisfied. It's interesting, the lust of the, of the flesh, experiencing everything that you can. I don't know if you've seen those books. They were, there were lots of them a number of years ago. The 100 Things to Do Before You Die. In fact, there was a whole series of books called A Thousand and One Things 
to do before you die. And I reckon if you could actually read the books, that would be all that you could do, let alone the things in them. I mean, a hundred places to see, a hundred natural wonders of the, the world to experience, a thousand recipes to cook, a thousand books to read, a thousand movies that you must see before you die, a thousand different wines to try, all kinds of things. In fact, here's a, here's a fun fact for you. The guy who wrote probably the pioneer of those books, A Hundred Things to Do Before You Die, died at the age, I think it was 47, slipping in the shower. I mean, he, he said all the places you've got to go to, all the things you've got to experience, all the things that you've got to do, and I don't think he got halfway through his bucket list. But we think that way, don't we? We, we think that if, if I can watch all those movies, if I can experience all those golf courses, if I can kind of go to all those surf breaks, if, if I can uh, take on all of these things and these experiences, then my life is full. And that's the message that the world gives us. You want a full life? Experience it. Take it on, do everything, suck all the marrow that you can. And then there's the lust of the eyes. And I, th I think this kind of is so caught up. It's the desire for what you don't have. The Bible has another word for it, it's called coveting. And I think we've got a new word for it. It's called retail therapy. I don't know if you've actually paused and thought about the nature of retail therapy. But it seems to me an obscene idea when two-thirds of the world struggle to know where their meals are coming from that we go and shop to feel good about ourselves. But we are fed the message day in and day out. Our computers, our TV screens, our phones, the, uh, the, the rolled-up pieces of paper that come down the driveway that are absolutely full of things to buy. And, of course, with the algorithms now that know everything about you, they can target the advertising. You've only got to say the word pop-up tent in your lounge room and Facebook will start feeding you pop-up tents to purchase. That's the world that we're in. It's never been easier to be sucked in to coveting than it is today. But we are told that that's not what life is all about. Life is not the total of what we buy or what we have. And we need to be reminded here, in the next part it says, and the pride of life. Um, it's interesting that they translated this, the pride of life, because the same word gets used in the next chapter to speak very clearly about possessions. It's not the normal word for life, which is Zoe. Um, this is a more specific word, for life can mean life, but it can also mean lifestyle. It can mean property. It can mean possessions. And I think in the context here, it, it could be all these things, but it's really about look at me and look at what I've got. And again, there is so much temptation to feel that if we've got this, if we've experienced that, if we can only have what we don't have, then we'll have made it. We will have the good life. We'll be flourishing. We'll be the people that we could be. We'll reach our potential. And really, it's all about making ourselves the centre of our universe. And we can't be the centre of our universe and God the centre of our world at the same time. So it's not so much a fight between the world and God or money and God. It's fundamentally a fight between me and God. 
These are the lusts of my flesh. These are the lusts of my eyes. This is the pride of my life, my possessions, my things. And do we feel that that is the case? I mean, we've got to get a sense, don't we, coming into Christmas, that we live in a world which is feeding us this again and again and again. We had friends who were missionaries in northern Cambodia, up in the highlands, in a village. They came back just before Christmas and vowed to never return from the mission field around Christmas ever again because it was so obscenely different to people who were content with food on the table and a thatched roof over their heads and maybe some clean clothes. We are in a dangerous place. It's a dangerous place to live. Bonnie Hills, right up there, one of the most dangerous places in Australia. Port Macquarie as well. Dumbogan, Lauriton, Lake Cadai, out on the properties, all around us, it is a dangerous world that we're living in. Because we can so easily be sucked into loving it. Because it's so good. Why do we have to be told not to love the world, but only to love the things that come from God? Because they are so lovable. And we are constantly being told that our lives will be better if only we can have what we don't currently have. I fall prey to this. I imagine that most of you fall prey to this. And so God's word encourages us to spur each other on to love. God, not things. One another, not things. But there's a number of perspectives, I think, that help to remind us of this. We go back to the verses that come before. You'll notice if you, uh, if you did the Bible studies and the salt groups during the week, you will have seen this. But there are three kind of parallel statements. And then they're, um, they're repeated in two clauses. I'm writing to you, dear children, writing to your fathers, writing to your young men. And then verse 14, writing to your dear children, fathers, young men. And then there are a number of things that are together. I think we're to take this as the overall impact of it, rather than, okay, all you young men there, all you old men over there, and all you women, hey, you can enjoy yourselves. Uh, no. We belong, this is saying, to our Father in heaven. And notice what gets said about our Father in heaven. This is, this is a key thing in the text. You see it there in verse 13, and you see it again in verse 14. Because you know him who is from the beginning. So the key thing that we're told about God here is that God is from the beginning. That is, God is eternal. God is everlasting. God is not of this world. God, after all, is the creator of this world. He was there before. He'll be there after. God is eternal. And we, if we've come to Christ, have God as our Father. We belong to him. That's a key thing to take on board. Because contentment will come from knowing that we are in the family of the eternal God. He is our Father. I mean, what more could we wish for? If we have the eternal God as our Father, you, you might think, oh, gee, wouldn't it have been good to be um, born in the, the home of, of, of someone like Warren Buffett or Bill Gates and, and have all of this? No, not particularly, because we've got more already. But only if we understand things as being eternal. You constrain things to life under the sun, life in this world, the temporary, the tangible, 
alone and you'll think, hey, yeah, I could, I could do with being brought up in the family of billionaires. Notice also it says that we have been forgiven, verse 12, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. We are reminded here that God has brought us into his family and nothing can separate us from that because we are forgiven people. That is, there's no debt owing. But there's good news in this as well. That is, there are going to be times when we love the world rather than love God. And we need to hear that there is forgiveness in Christ. You're going to fail. I'm going to fail. This is not a legalistic message that says, if you can conjure up, work hard, focus on only loving the things uh, that are spiritual and eternal, and you're not distracted by anything in this world, then everything will be okay. That might lead somebody to go and live in a monastery and have nothing to do with anybody or anything or any physical pleasure ever again. But they've probably never heard of the good news of the gospel of Jesus, forgiveness and freedom. We're also told, or the young men are told, in particular notice, I write to you, young men, because you are strong. They're strong, these young men. But why are they strong? Well, because the word of God lives in them and they have overcome the evil one. See, we're not strong in our own strength. We are weak in our own strength. Even the strongest of us, and that's not me. No, true strength comes by being indwelt by the word of God. And the word of God that's on view here is a word that gives life. It, it, the word of God in John's letter is the word that brings eternal life. That is the gospel word. It's what scripture is all about. And that dwells in us and we're given life. And I think that's what we need to keep remembering, that we have the word of God. We have the gospel that gives life. Whenever we're tempted by the, the, the Boxing Day sales or the, or the Black Friday sales or the Cyber Monday sales or the whatever sales that there are, as we're being constantly fed that we are not good enough, but we will be if only we buy this or have that, we need to remember that we have the word of God, that we have life. And that will give us the strength to resist the temptation of loving the world. And finally, why should we love the Father and not the world? Well, because we would be absolutely stupid not to. Why is that? Well, look at verse 17. It's the clincher, really. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Now, I want to try something with you. Who's ever been to a beach? Come on, put up your hand. This is participation. Even you, Keith, yes, we've, uh, we've all been to the beach, haven't we? Um, anyone built a sandcastle? Okay, has anyone built a sandcastle? <laughs> All right. Gee, we need to get a load of talk. Um, now, here's the picture. If we love the things of this world, we are like people who build sandcastles between the high tide mark and the low tide mark. If we invest our life into loving the world, it might look spectacular. It might be a credit to our hard work. It might be something we've done together with 
wonderful effort from every member of the family. It might have captured the attention of our community because the sandcastle is so good that it gets put on the local rag. But you know what's going to happen? The tide will come in and it will pass away. Friends, if you don't want your life to be like one building sandcastles, then please base your life on the love of God that's been shown in Christ. And look to the Father who will be your Father for all eternity. And don't waste your life on things that won't last.